I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. There's a New Testament verse that summarizes our Old Testament text today quite beautifully. It comes from Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Perhaps you're familiar with it or you've heard it in the past. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This verse describes what life together as a faithful local church should look like in our better moments. A people saturated with God's Word, in covenant together, described as membership for the express purpose of sharing the Word, instructing in the Word, holding one another to the Word, loving each other like the Word describes. More to the point, singing songs directly from the Word. In short, singing the Word is part of our praise. The fidelity of what we do is in no small part dependent upon Bible saturation in what we do. Increasing our meditation on the Word of God, our understanding of principles of interpretation and right application of the Word of God, of hearing His voice for His glory and also for our good. We want it to be so. And how would we live out a verse like Colossians 3.16? Aside from assembling each week as a local church, being around one another, how would we live out the letting of the Word of God dwelling within us richly? How would the Word of God dwell within us, within you, together richly, without gathering together around the Word? There are highs and lows in the Christian life. We'll see that in our text today. I think of a parallel in the prophets with Elijah. I remember the story of Elijah calling down fire on the prophets of Baal, only to become exhausted and then to run away from the fight. From the next challenge, God was gentle with Elijah, nursed him back to strength, and fed him. In 1 Kings 19, it says that in that episode that there was wind, but the Lord was not in the wind. It says after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Some of you will know, then there's fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And there was the sound of a whisper. The voice of the Lord brought comfort. And the way the phenomenon could not. And on that same mount the Exodus people were journeying to, Elijah heard the sound of a low voice. Just like the sheep of God, we His people even today know the sound of the Lord's voice, His words. And there's no voice quite like the Lord's to help us. For Elijah, the Lord gave him next steps. A successor named Elisha. A reminder that he was not alone in the faith, but there were others that had not bowed the knee to Baal. That refused to compromise their worship just to get along in this quickly passing world. And that really gets at Exodus 15. Because we must not compromise our worship in order to get along in this quickly passing world. Our worship is not according to the fare of our day. Our worship is according to the fare of our God. What He wants and expects from us. How He instructs our worship. How He wants to be worshipped. We should not compromise our worship, but we also should not remain willfully ignorant of what God wants for us in worship, how he wants us to worship him by the word corporately. And so today, it is ours and ours to open our ears to hear the word, our eyes to see the word, and our hearts to see the word, with the help of God, that we might more fully understand how God is to be worshipped as early in the Bible as the very second book that's written in Exodus 15. Table Talk Magazine is a great resource, and... Table Talk Magazine in May talked about 
the preaching and the reading of the word. I'll quote them now here by way of introduction to our topic today. They wrote, the the Reformed tradition often speaks of the preached word of God as being the word of God. This is not because of anything inherent in the preacher, but rather because preaching reflects the power and authority inherent in God's word. When scripture is, is read and preached accurately, we are to heed it because preaching is God's word being brought to bear on our lives. We are more familiar with reading and preaching the word, but the Bible also declares we are to sing the word, that we're to see the word, like in baptism, the Lord's Supper, and that we're to pray the word. All five of those things we're to do together when we gather, and when we do these things together when we gather, we are attempting to worship God according to his word. And I believe you can grow in your faith today by better understanding even this early part of the Bible and how it instructs us to let the word of God dwell in us richly on the Lord's day when we sing and see and pray and how that has an effect on our entire week and how we live. We don't stand for worship and song. We need to offer a correction early this morning. We don't stand for worship when we stand for songs. We stand for worship when we stand for songs the same as we stand for worship when we stand to hear the word read, when we stand for worship to pray together. Worship is not reducible to the singing. The songs are included in the worship. So it's benefit to us if we consider that it's not a song service and then a preaching service. It's one worship service, all things considered. And in our better moments, it is our attempt to integrate that way. That all we do in the time constraints of call to worship to benediction is praising to God. And I understand that it would be possible for you to think to yourself, why do I need to know the science behind this? Just do it and we'll be blessed. And I think that's a fair critique on the main. But I think our text today really points to the science behind it. Because they're no sooner than out of the Red Sea till they're singing together as a congregation. And we should too. And they're no sooner out of the Red Sea till they get in a quagmire and they're being led in prayer, crying out to God for help. And as a people, they are looking to God, sometimes grumbling, but needing to look to God for help in their moments and praising Him for the highs and for the lows. As high as Elijah was calling down fire on the prophets of Baal, as low as he was setting out in the wilderness by himself, needing to be comforted, God is with his people. And he's with us in spite of how we feel, in spite even of our fatigue. Some of you are so tired today. You just need to be rejuvenated by the word in ways that you didn't expect. The word, may it seep into your pores today. You didn't come expecting a lot. And I hope you're amazed by God's grace. I hope you're amazed by his kindness to you to encourage you like Elijah, even in your moment of weakness. And Exodus 15 is a summary of all those themes, I believe. And I think to really draw it in together with Exodus 15 being the first recorded hymn in our Bible and to make it very much for you, I, just, I want to show you one verse from Exodus 15 before I read the entire chapter without comment to you. And it's very simply verse 26. I think it is a parallel with Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell on you richly. And here's what Exodus 15.26 says. It says, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. This is the voice of the Lord. This is the Lord's word being recorded by Moses for us in Exodus. Same as it's been recorded by the prophets and the apostles in your fuller Bible. It's uh, something that Colossians 3.16 is a more mature version of. But nevertheless, it's right there in germ. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Listen to the voice of the Lord. And, And so may it be for us today that we listen to the voice of the Lord through the word of God. And may the word of God dwell in you more richly through three things today. We'll see in the first 12 verses the singing of the word. And then, by extension, in verses 13 to 19, we'll see seeing the word. 
like seeing a visual early representation of the meaning of baptism. And then finally, in verses 22 to the end of the chapter, praying the word, crying out for help that Moses did for his people just three days after the high of the high. So let's hear the word of the Lord now from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 27. If you have your print Bible, you can follow along with that. You're going to notice a lot of parallel between what I read here in Exodus 15 and what we just sang, because that song is a conscious attempt to be very textual. So you'll hear some theme, some very, very same phrases, some lyrics coming right out of this first hymn in our Bible, the so-called Song of Moses and Miriam. So hear the word of the Lord now, Exodus 15, 1 to 27. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard they tremble. Pangs have ceased the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, where you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Then, for when the horses of Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. For it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto all those here. Looking at the first part of this text today, may the word of God dwell in you more richly through the singing of the word, through singing the word. We see this most clearly in verses 1 to 12, but also in verses 20 to 21, where they sing to God, about God, and with instruments. So sing the word to God. 
Exodus 15, like other recorded songs of Moses, like Deuteronomy 32 or Psalm 90, they're victory hymns. They're hymns of adoration and praise. They're similar to the song after the Israelite conquest in Judges or Hannah's song or Mary's song when with child, miraculously, God's people are to sing to God. It is true that we have a secondary set of ears when we gather together. One another. We hear one another when we sing, right? I mean, you hear people singing. And there is teaching and correcting and encouraging and unifying work that's done when we sing solid biblical lyrics together corporately as a people. The Word says so, and it is so. But there's a priority when we sing the Word of vertical that is tied to the reason that we're all to be here. God saved us. Because He saved us, He is our primary audience. He is why we should be here. The service is worship to God. And when we worship through singing the Word, we are to sing to God. We hear this in verse 1. Exodus 15:1 says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to God, or to the Lord. They sang the song to God. God, as the primary audience. And then you see in verse 1, I will sing. You see in verse 2, I will praise. You see, if you look down in verse 2, I will exalt. Synonymous phrases pointing that praise is to God. Yes, there are leaders like Moses and, and Miriam or Mary singing the word. But the song is to the Lord, and it's sang by all the redeemed people, all the people purchased by God, passing through the waters of the sea. And and note in verse 1, the people sang the song. Note that it was the the people, it's a congregation singing that, even though there was leadership, they're singing this first recorded hymn in the Bible. And each of us should sing because we have such a reason to sing. Now, before spelling that out any further, I just want to pause and and ask you to think for a moment or two to yourself, what reason do you have to sing the Word back to God? What reason do you have to sing the Word back to God? I could fill in the gaps for you, and I will with a few Phrases from Exodus 15, but I just want you to think about it. Like, what, what reason do you have to sing the word back to God? To sing the word to God, sing about God. Slightly different than singing to God, although it's, just, it's the same thing in a sense. But sing like they sing about God Himself. This is a great way to approach singing the word. Not, it's not about what, what you will do or what I will do. It's about what He does. Sing to God in the content of your hymns. Sing about God. Uh, Look at at, at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is my song. How? Well, the same way that we can say here that the Lord is my salvation. How? The content of what I sing about in worship is God. We're singing about God, about His attributes. You know, I want to take a moment and publicly thank those who take the time to prepare to lead us in singing the Word each week. Like Moses and Miriam did so in Exodus 15, appropriate to their roles, of course, considerate of their king, of course, they led in service to the people or the congregational singing. And that's important. Good songs are singable by us. Lyrically, they are about God. And they are singable by us. They are meant to be put to music in a way and in a key that the common person can and should sing. And these that labor to help us be faithful in singable songs with biblical lyrics are worthy of honor. The Bible says to give honor where honor is due. Now, I'm no hater of new musical formations. However, I must admit I'm partial to old hymns. 
You might ask me why. Well, I'm really glad you asked. I'm going to tell you why. It's for the same reason that I'm partial to old books. If the books are still around, say, 200 years later, like, say, the Puritans, the English Puritans, if their books, just for example, there's more, if the books are still around 200 years later, then what you can know is you are reading the best of the best of the best. No one troubles themselves to reproduce or edit a mediocre at best work or a work that was only helpful for a particular half of a generation or a decade. The timeless works are the ones that last. They're carried forward. And it's not that a new book won't be carried forward. It's just it hasn't stood the test of time yet. It's not that I'm against new books. It's just it hasn't stood the test of time yet. It's not just with books. It's with hymns. New books might be that good, but the proven ones, the ones that have been curated, are the ones that are old. The rabbis had a saying, they said, if it's new, it isn't true. I don't know that that's anything more than tongue-in-cheek to an extent, but it's sort of like a way of saying that we should appreciate old hymns. And we should appreciate those that help us to worship the Lord with biblically sound musical lyrics as we sing the words. I'm thankful for the labors of our music team, and I'm thankful for you singing the word each week. It is a privilege to hear the words sung in the, not the song service, but in the portion of our service that includes the songs. It's not its own service. It's part of the whole. It's all together. And we worship now the same as then. It's, it's like a, a, a woven together tapestry about God when we sing. We're singing together. And we're singing to God and about God, but we're singing with instruments. We hear the percussion ringing here with Miriam's tambourine, and we hear the stringed instruments when we get to the Psalms, and we hear the sound of the most important instrument, your voice, ringing in every hymn sang from God's Word. So don't be afraid of instruments, and don't be afraid of the sound of your own voice, which is the main thing. We're just singing to the Lord's our voice. You know, I have a bit of a challenge for those of you that are musicians, as I've thanked you so well. As you continue to understand your role ever so much more and more fully, seeking to be faithful. You're working yourself, obviously, through the fear of singing, or you wouldn't be up here. I mean, it takes some courage to get up in front of God's people and turn around and face the people. I just want to challenge you not to forget that fear. Because the people that you're looking at when you look out, many of them are afraid. They're afraid to sing out. Now, whether or not that fear is founded, I don't know, but it's fear nonetheless. Kind of like a fear of public speaking. They're afraid, and we shouldn't forget that. Be careful about telling somebody they can't carry a tune in a bucket. Be careful about that, because they need to carry a tune in this bucket, don't they? Because we're all supposed to sing. And I am convinced that you're not doing God a favor like you think you are by holding your peace in your voice during the ceremony or the service or the worship, however you want to say it. If, in fact, theologically speaking, you're supposed to sing the word, if the right inference from Exodus 15 as the earliest believers in Yahweh sang the word, then you are supposed to sing the word as the people of God, to God and about God, using the instrumentation of your voice. So, I mean, we'll get better as we sing, I assure you. I'm with you in this one, but sing and encourage one another to sing. When we sing to God, it's not a competition, it's a collaboration. If we ever reduce it to a competition, we've missed the heart of worship. Our singing then has become too much about these ears and not enough about God's. Verse 11, in our chapter here, it says, Who is like our God? It's worthy to jump to that verse and reflect. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And I don't mean that I think that the Bible is polytheistic. I think it's just acknowledging that every little nation had their own God. None of these little gods are like you. You're the real God. I think that's, that's how I read verses like that. Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you in holiness? Majestic in holiness. Awesome in glorious deeds. Doing wonders. The name of God appears 11 times in verses 1 to 18. And again, once in Miriam's refrain. 
And there are pronouns. I mean, this is just so much about God. It's saturated with God-centricness. And our songs are to be so. They're to Him, about Him, and they're using the instrumentation of our voice as well as other instruments to bring praise to God. Arthur Pink said this about hymnody. He said, Our hymnody has fallen on sad times. It has become so man-centered that it does not glorify God anymore. The majority of the hymns of the past 50 years are full of sentimentality instead of divine adoration. They announce our love to God instead of His to us. They recount our experiences instead of His excellencies. This song of Moses is far different. Its stated purpose from the beginning is to exalt God. Verse 2. End quote. How is he praised in these verses? Instead of reading them afresh, with the stanzas that are in there that clearly points this out as a poetic song, it's the poetic version of the prose that was in verse in chapter 14. They, they twin together, 14 and 15 does. Let me just sort of rephrase, refresh for you some of the ways in which God has described his attributes in singing the word, in praising God in this text. I'm just going to read a few things I wrote down to summarize instead of reading 1 through 12 again and beyond. So just, just listen. He triumphed. He's strong. He's saved us. He's personal. My, he's named the Lord Yahweh, imminent, not just transcendent. He's knowable. He's just. He's a man of war, meaning that he takes injustice seriously. There's no weakness in God. He's personal, powerful, permanent forever. He does not change. He does not give his glory to another. He's stable enough for you to be your rock. You can trust in him in the hardest of times. You can rejoice in him in the best of times. In fact, he tests his people in this chapter, never tempts, but tests, as we will soon hear, to help them to experience that he is trustworthy, that he is all of these things. Other men will fail you. God never will. There's a hope in his promises because he always keeps them. He's holy, majestic. There's none like him. He has been and he will be this way. That's what I get from the first 12 verses and a little beyond in Exodus 15. I hope that you'll read it afresh and consider it and consider developing skills with instruments, including your voice, children, that are in my hearing, I want to say a word to you as we're very simply talking about singing. And we're going to be talking about baptism. We're going to be talking as well about praying in this sermon, but just about singing before we move further because this is the largest theme within this chapter. I want to encourage you to develop the instrument of your voice and sing to the Lord. And sing to the Lord a new song. You know, I, I, I think what you might take from this is Matt's against new songs. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm just for old lyrics. They're in the Bible. Sing the Bible. Put it to new instrumentation if you want to, but make sure it meets that criteria of singability by the people. It's congregationally. This is not the radio station. When we gather, it's about us singing to the Lord and worship. And so there's a criteria for that. And it does take skill. And that's why we thank the people that lead us because they're having to do things behind the scenes that you don't even understand because you don't have to do them. Just like I wouldn't understand your work if I went to your job. It would take me weeks upon weeks just to get the intricacies that are even existing, let alone to understand them. There's a lot going on. And their job is important. And so give honor where honor is due in that sense. And also have a healthy accountability for what we should expect as we sing the word. Now, before we run to our second point, because this is by far the longest of the three points. The other two are not as long. No less important, but they're not as long. I want to tell you about this old and new, how they kind of mash up. And the way I want to tell it to you is in service to old songs saying new, look to the newest book in your Bible written in the A.D. 90s by the Apostle John. And consider Revelation 15, and you don't have to necessarily flag that because I think we'll be able to show it. I think we'll be able to show it on the screen. Mainly Revelation 15:1 to 4, where the song of Moses that had formerly served as a national anthem is now recorded in the hymn book of heaven. And Revelation shows this fuller picture, the fuller revelation, the word for the nations and all about the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And, and, and listen to how this this flows out in Revelation 15:1 to 4. The, This says, Then John, I, saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of whom? The song of Moses. Do you know what the song of Moses is? It's Exodus 15. They're singing the lyrics of Exodus 15. Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. You, see, you hear this, this theme of God's attributes and His expanding attributes to the nation. And it says, Who 
will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And we're going to see that unfold a little more in our second point as we look at, at seeing the word. But before we move just past it, I, I want to encourage uh, you once more with just, just a brief word. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, we say. But be careful, little mouths, what you sing, too. Because what you sing, it really does become a part of you. I'm not saying that you can't listen to secular music. Don't hear me. I'm not up here promoting things. That's not what I'm saying. You make those decisions at home. I'm just simply saying this. Sing to God about God using the instrument of your voice to bring praise to God. Secondly, not just singing the word, but we dwell richly in the word when we see the word. Now, this requires a little bit of theology. We'll try to do that briefly. But may the word of God dwell in you richly through seeing the word. And I think we envision this most clearly in verses 13 to 19, where God leads and expands and resides with his people. We see the worship, we see the word in our worship through two ordinances that are church ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And the recapitulation of chapter 14 in chapter 15, from poetry to prose, from study to song, is a celebration of deliverance seen in a type of baptism. So we see the word in baptism. God lovingly leads his redeemed or his purchased people as illustrated through the waters of baptism. And this gets to the heart of the gospel, to the blood atonement even of Christ. The fullest expression of this is in your escalating Bible with Christ's shed blood for you. Now, I'm indebted to Dr. David Schrock, who I had as a TA in seminary. He's writing now really magnificently on these ordinances these sacraments, the usage of baptism and Lord's Supper amongst God's people. And he helpfully explains in an article he wrote titled, Behold Your Escalating Bible, about how Old Testament baptisms lead to the cross. He writes this about the explaining of the crossing of the Red Sea in light of biblical baptism in light of an escalating sense or a sense of escalation in the Bible. So listen to how he, he writes it. I think it's more clear the way that he says it. He says, Jesus is the goal of the history of redemption. It's not surprising then that we find structures or types in the Old Testament that escalate until you find fulfillment in Jesus. In other words, the scriptures begin with glimpses of the pre-incarnate Christ and glad, gradually add contour and color to the portrait of the coming Messiah. Over time, such glimpses of grace are developed and made more concrete as the types, that is, forward-looking persons, events, institutions of the Old Testament, repeat and escalate. One prominent event repeated in the Old Testament is the concept of baptism. As Peter observes in his first epistle, baptism corresponds in terms of fulfillment to Noah and his life-saving, making humanity saved through an ark, 1 Peter 3.20. Now, Schrock shows that Old Testament types don't just prefigure Christ in his work of salvation, but also grow in intensity and effectualness as the incarnation or the birth of Christ nears. So he gives a few examples. Like Noah's ark, Jesus' cross will become a refuge for all who seek in him. He seek rest in him. Like Moses' staff, Jesus will be lifted up so as to deliver his people from impending death. Like the priests in the, in, in the Jordan, Jesus will insert himself into the stream of God's wrath. Like Jonah, Jesus will volunteer himself to be swallowed in the earth so that he might rise to save the nations. In these ways and more, Jesus both fulfills and also eclipses Scripture's previous installments in the pattern of baptism. With the full light of revelation, we can see how each of these biblical baptisms foreshadow with increasing intensity and efficacy the cross of Jesus Christ. In each case, the magnitude of suffering does relate in some unspecified way to the magnitude of God's mercy. As redemptive history progresses, the various types increase in passion, but also in the measurement of their salvation, say from Noah's family to the nation of Israel with Moses and with Joshua, to the nations of the world like with Jonah. And in each case, the baptism is physical, not spiritual, since none can accomplish what Christ alone can. In Jesus' case, since his sacrifice is offered with his own blood, his death has the power not only to procure forgiveness for all his people, but also to ensure that his message will reach his people in every corner of the earth. He will save the whole family of faith from the floodwaters of God's wrath. To this day, the power of Christ's bloody baptism is displayed as the cross reconciles all things. Think of Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. So when we read the Old Testament, 
we need to observe the intricate details through which God paves the way for His Son and marvel at His wisdom and power to save sinful believers through Christ's superlative baptism, end quote from David Schrock. And so what we see is the Word in a baptism. And we see the Word in baptism in how God leads His people. If you look at Exodus 15, 13, you have led in your steadfast love. He leads His people in love, the people He's redeemed. And it says also in this text, he, he, we see the word in baptism, I think, and pictures of baptism with the gospel expanding to the nations. It may sound like a, a sort of a, an odd way to explain it, but look at verses 14 through 16 of Exodus 15. It says the peoples have heard, they've heard about the Lord. They've trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, of Edom, of Moab. Canaan has melted away. This is a, a futuristic Perfect prophecy stated in the passive. And when we look at this, we see that this vision of baptism through the Red Sea, of, we see this vision of, of salvation expanding to the nations. The crossing of the Red Sea escalating demonstrates the gospel that needs to go forth to the nations. The Red Sea is thought of by some as the sea of ends or the sea of death, the end. The sea became a watery grave for rebels, but in God's kindness, the sea became a resurrection experience for His purchased people. And for us in baptism here and pray that we would have more people come to sincere faith in Christ and that their profession will be followed with baptism and membership conferred in a local body. Pray that these waters would be moving, that the Lord would bring people to sincere faith, which only He can do. Baptisms illustrate for us each time we see the word through them when we see them they illustrate a resurrected life which should have finished us we should have been finished in death but instead God in his kindness resurrects us to life which is supernatural that we might rise to a brand new life that's why we say buried with Christ rise to a brand new life and unless you think this is just kind of gobbledygook, just consider just four places of the New Testament we won't even put them on the screen just just bang 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 first Corinthians 10 2 Baptize Moses, see. Romans 6, 1 to 8 defines it this way, death to life, baptism. Hebrews 3 contrasts the lesser work of the servant Moses with the greater work of the servant Jesus in this way. Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Just think about it in those terms. And as we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And we see the word in baptism. We see the word in the Red Sea crossing over. And we see how God leads us. We see how it escalates to the nations, because even though these nations were condemned, they're learning about God. And what we find is that the gospel will go to all nations and that people from every tribe and tongue will be redeemed. And so we see the expanding of the word through the word being seen as well as sung. The word going forth, not just preached and read, but seen and sung. And we see the word going forth in baptism as early as the Red Sea crossing, and we see that this is a, embedded in a promise of God's eternal abode. That word's kind of funny in the text, right? Abode, which means like a home or His presence. He's with you, or, or to put it the way I think might be most helpful, is He resides with His people. Heaven is heaven because God is there. The new heavens and the new earth are described this way in the Bible as God-centric or God-centered. Christ is the temple, the light the light of sun in the new creation. He is our focus. And so our worship when we get to the new creation is to be the same as it is now. It's to be God-centric to God and about God. And Exodus 15, if you let your eyes wander down to verses 17 and 18, tells of God's intent to make for them an abode which points to the Lord's forever reign, forever presence with His people in the new creation. So, so look at 17 and 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place O Lord, for which you have made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The ESV study Bible is really helpful on this point. And it's not just instruction, it also gets you to, to worship and application if you think about it. Here's what they say. In one sense, the whole hilly country of Canaan will be like God's, will be God's dwelling. But His abode may be a more specific reference to the hill of Jerusalem where God's temple will stand. But the conquest of Canaan prefigures the entrance into the final sanctuary of God's presence mediated by Christ. 
We see that in Hebrews, very important book in putting all of us together. We see that in Revelation 21, 22, where summarized, our confidence to enter the holy places is through the blood of Jesus. And John saw a vision at the end of the Bible this way. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. He is our salvation. He is our song. So this, these verses help us to see the salvation picture in crossing the Red Sea in a way uh, another sign might not. Uh, Exodus 15, 19 really sums up point two. So I'm just going to read it straight away. We'll go to point three because I realize this is the most theological and difficult to understand point. I think everybody knows we're supposed to sing. I think everybody knows we're supposed to pray. But how do you see the word in incidents like baptism? Just look very specifically and may the Lord use Exodus 15, 19 to show the contrast of death to life. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea. Remember, they're enemies of God's people. They're trying to kill and imprison and enslave God's people. They're chasing them down. There's a reason during the persecution described in the book of Revelation, they're hearkening back to the events of the Exodus. These people for hundreds of years have been have been persecuted, and they've been, they've been tortured, and they've been made to make drips, bricks without straw, and now God's going to turn them to stubble, and that is good. If that's what it means for God to be just and a man of war, that is good. And it says here that they went into the sea, and the, brought, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but look at the contrast. The people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. That's a miracle. You're not supposed to walk on dry ground in the middle of the sea. You're supposed to be in your watery grave, you're supposed to be good as dead if the, if the sea around you does what it's supposed to do and swallows you up. This is the supernatural provision of God. And every time a new person passes from death to life through the salvation that is provided in Christ, it is as much and more of a miracle as the parting of the Red Sea. Every single regenerate person in my hearing, you have a reason to worship through the Word because God has saved your soul. And it's a miracle. And it's worth, every single time it's worthy, He's worthy of praise, and it's worthy of your remembrance. Third, may the Word of God dwell in you more richly through praying the Word. Praying the Word. After Miriam's singing, we see this best in verses 22 to the end of the chapter, where they, they set out from their experience of salvation... In their salvation, they head out from the Red Sea upon Moses' command. And, and what happens is the Word of God dwells in them more richly as they, they cry out to God and praying the Word with thirst and, and being, being filled. Honestly, they get a drink, but also looking to future fulfillment. So we see those two things here, all centered around praying the Word. So, so look, look at verse 22. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found a water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses. And I don't need to dwell there now because there's plenty more grumbling that's going to happen. So there's no reason to really dwell on that right this second, just to say they did. And they said, what are we going to drink? Which is a legitimate complaint. I mean, at that point, it's a legitimate complaint. And he cried or he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and so on. Bitter water was made sweet. So let's, let's sort of get ourselves into the groove of this so that we can make sense of it for for our lives. He, he prays in thirst. He prays thirsty. Uh, they had gone three days. It's, I think three days is noteworthy in salvation history for sure. They'd gone three days into the wilderness. This had been promised as well in terms of Pharaoh. My people are going to make a journey. Two million of them, also animals with no drink. You know, think about when you've ever been hangry. You ever get hangry? I don't know how you put that to thirsty, but you know, think of something like that, that thirsty. You know, in terms of the natural progression of things, you you would have gone, if you were in this experience, from the high of singing to the low of, of in this instance, of crying out to God and asking for help. And, and in absolute desperation. And the text bears out that the Lord was testing His people by taking them on the brink of what fasting could, what, what a human could survive naturally. Three days without water and you're, you're done. And the text bears out that it, He did this to show them uh, that He's not only protector of them as a man of war, and a man of justice, but he's provider for them, like a, a more faithful father than any you've ever known. As protector and provider, God is illustrating here what he's done in the past, what he'll do in the future, but he's illustrating how he takes care of them in their present time of need. Imagine the desperation. It's not just that they had journeyed three days to get to a source of water, but now the water's not drinkable. 
Some scholars think it was, it was poisonous. It would actually harm them if they drank too much of it. It would give them a bellyache. So there, it's, it's like drinking seawater. It's like water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. There's nothing they can do. Imagine the desperation embedded in this test. Now, God never tempts his people, but he certainly allows his people to be tested as, bared out in, as is borne out in Exodus 15. And imagine getting a, a sweet drink after three days of thirst. Just imagine this experience. It would have left an indelible mark, should have left an indelible mark on the people of God, certainly on Moses, as he writes about it and what we now have in this, in this scripture in Exodus 15. My granddad, when we would make good grades in school, was a man of his hands, he worked. Not a lot of education, has passed away. But I remember being a young boy, and I remember if we would make good grades in school because he wanted us to study, he would give us some money and he would say, maybe you've heard this before, some of you at some age have probably heard this, now take this money and if you want to, get you a cold sweet drink. You ever heard that one? Go get you a cold, sweet drink. Maybe that's an Arkansasism. I don't know. That meant go get you a soda. Go get you a soda. Cold, cold one. A cold, sweet drink. Go get you a cold, sweet drink, boy. Here's your $5 or whatever the case may be. Go get you something to drink. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe sodas are so ubiquitous now you don't even care. I don't know. But my point in bringing it up is just very simply this. When you're really thirsty or when you're without privilege, a, something cold to drink is really special. Something sweet to drink is special, especially if previously all you had to drink was bitter and was not helpful was even harmful. God meets their needs. Moses, and I assume the people, some of them pray to God, and Moses represents them, and they, they pray in thirst, and they get filled. And I'm sure they were filled with thanksgiving. I can imagine that cries of thanksgiving went up. Thank you, Yahweh, for getting us a drink after we grumbled against you. I can only imagine what this was like. I mean, it's kind of like us, you know. I mean, we, we fail forward, you know. We're just constantly stubbing our toe. And it's just an act of sheer grace. God converted bitter water to sweet. To sweet. And as some pointed out, it's through the means of a, of a log or a tree or wood synonyms for this Hebrew word. The bitter became sweet. The word for log here is the same Hebrew word translated tree in Deuteronomy 21-23. You might say, well, why is that relevant? Because it says, cursed is anyone who is hung in judgment on a tree. And then, where is that found in the Bible? But in the New Testament in Galatians 3.13, where it's referencing Christ hanging on a tree who took on man's judgment by hanging on a tree for our sins, the tree of the cross. Now, there may not be expositional continuity directly from the log that was thrown in that water to Galatians via Deuteronomy. I'm not necessarily advocating that. What I'm saying is God on more than one occasion turns bitterness into sweetness through the use of common means like wood or like a tree. And what I am saying is, is that God will meet your need where you are. He will help you where you are. He will help you to understand that your bitter plight is necessary in filling up the afflictions of Christ in walking all the way to glory. And he will surprise you by grace in a moment where He will fill you in that moment en route to when you will actually die and meet the Lord. We have to read all of this through the lens of God's unfolding plan and His fuller revelation of Scripture. Because if we take this verse to mean that because God is our healer, He will always heal our physical needs if we just have enough faith, then we've misunderstood what Scripture is communicating to us. If He would always heal us if we just had enough faith, then we'd never have to face physical death after you know, 80, 90 years, whatever the case may be, now would we? God can give a stay on any man's death. Look at Hezekiah. But God didn't give a stay on the death of Jesus. If it is His will for you to die at 30, you will. And you say, well, how is that, how is that fair? Well, it, it's certainly not helpful in the immediate sense that you're going to die. But sin has led to our deaths. Not like individual sin, but just, just common sin. Sin, when it's full grown, the Bible says it ends in death. The reason that you're outwardly wasting away is because we've all sinned. We're sinners. And we deserve not only physical death, but God's anger. And in God's kindness, He's not our healer to forever heal us from physical death, although we have installments of this here. We have installments with it with Jesus as well. But all those people died. All the people in the Exodus are now dead physically. All the people in the first generation that Jesus healed, they're dead. They're all dead. What is healing pointing toward? It's not pointing toward you getting to keep this exact body intact as it is in eternity. It's pointing to a glorified corporal existence in eternity. It's pointing to glorification in eternity. It's pointing to the other side of your sanctification. When you are absent from this body, you're present with Christ forevermore. What we're talking about when we talk about the Lord being a healer is not simply that He can do a miracle of turning bitter water sweet after three days of thirst and almost physical death. It's the fulfillment that comes in the Lord Christ in all of eternity through being absent from this present plight and being forever with 
with the Lord. And I, I, that bears out in the text, honestly. bears out in the text because he prays and sees a greater fulfillment. And we see that in verses 25, 26, and then in verse 27. If you'll indulge, just look down at the text once more. It says in verse 25, When he cried out to the Lord, he threw a log into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute. He made them a rule. That's where he tested them. He said, if you will, and you may remember I started the sermon with this, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, if you will, will dwell, let the word of God dwell richly in you. And if you'll, let's do that together as God's people in our generation. And if you'll do what is right in the eyes of the Lord and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, then I'm not going to put these diseases on you as corrective punishment like I did on the Egyptians. You're my people. I'm the Lord. I'm your healer. What a banner, by the way. He's our healer. The great physician, right? I'm a clinician of the soul. This is our God. What a promise. What a promise. Let's not create a need for chastening now. What a promise. Let's cry to him as healer. And then, look at verse 27. They came to Elam. It must have been just out of sight. And there, there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And, and they set up camp. They encamped by the water. And, and you get to this verse and you think, okay, well, that's nice. There's water all over this chapter. There's a shadowy grave for the Egyptians. There's deliverance out of water. There's water they can't drink. And now there's water that they can. It's just this after, there's just a lot going on. But what are we to make right here? Well, we hear echoes of Eden, of the creation, and we hear echoes of the, we hear Revelation echoing this to describe the new creation as well. There's 12 tribes that were served by 12 springs. There were 70 people that came into Egypt. When, the, when Joseph first came to Egypt and Jacob's children, when Israel's children came. And now these very 70 people are not forgotten over 400 years later. But in the Exodus, and as they head towards Sinai, God points them to a far future by reassuring them with numbers that reminded them of the far, far past. The God of your fathers will serve as the God of your children's children. That's what's being communicated with these numbers, with these figures. So give the gospel to your children. And people, as you come to faith, follow the Lord Jesus in baptism. Let us see the word together as we sing the word together. And let us pray the word together, not just urgently, but every, every day all the time, on a schedule. Most of us don't feel like praying. When we get up in the morning, just pray. But do pray urgently. I mean, if you're in a, if you're in a tough time, let's pray. We'll end our service today praying to the Lord with some petitions. Let us pray to the Lord and call to the Lord. But understand, this text is a wonderful comfort to us because here they are, on the other side of their sin, having been delivered to the salvation of crossing the Red Sea, having experienced all this and saying all this word, having fallen and gotten back up again. Here they are, nourished by God, being reminded of some ancient truths and some future promises. Now that is part of letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let us pray.